be bound to the shepherd's light this morning, um, cord, cord on the mobile. Um, some of you will be glad for that because you found that when I wander away from the, the music stand untethered, I tend to go rogue. Um, let me start this way. I had a difficult time with this passage uh, with the title uh, and also with the outline. You notice that we're in a series talking about our identity being in Christ. And our identity is now taken because of Christ inside of us. It's not something that we've gone out and achieved. I haven't become a Christian, acted like a Christian, talked like a Christian, walked like a Christian, and then God says, okay, I identify you as a Christian. It's more that like a seed planted in the soil of a person's heart, that I am now identified without having done anything at this point as a Christian, and then Christ is at work. But that work will bear fruit, and that fruit is my walk, and that testifies to my identity. So there is identity, but also my imitation of my elder brother Christ that's a mark or a sign or evidence of my identity. Now, every week, we've taken on a new facet of our identity. I am new. I, uh, this week, we say, I am a child. Last week was, I am new. This week, I am a child. My first struggle this week was with the title. I was talking with Justin. I said, really, even though it sounds clunky, I really want to put down the title as, I am a walking child. I'm a walking child. Uh, because Paul, he says here in verse 2, and walk in love, and that is reminiscent of what he said back in chapter 4, verse 17, when he says, no longer walk as the Gentiles in, uh, and then that's reminiscent of where he says, back in verse 1 of chapter 4, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling that you've been called. So our walking, our walking is our identity. How we walk identifies us, but it's not simply walking, it's walking in imitation of Christ, and it's walking as a child. Three times in our passage selected this morning, he talks about it very specifically, where he says, first of all, in verse 2, walk in love. And then you go down to verse 7, he says, walk as children of light. So walk in love, walk as children in light. And then in verse 15, he says, walk not as unwise, but as wise. And that's our outline. But I struggled. I struggled because as I read over and over again through this passage, the outline that came first to mind was this. A list of six do-nots. Do not do this. Do not do this. Do not, uh, do not be sexually immoral. Do not be uh, filthy in your speech. Do not be, um, you know, don't have empty words. Do not associate with those of, you know, ill character, loose morals. There was a list of do-nots, and then I had a list of ten do's. 
became very burdensome to me. I thought, wow, really, is that what Paul's getting after? I mean, is he coming now to this young, fledgling congregation in this idolatrous city of Ephesus, this port city, very similar to Charleston, and is he saying, do not do this and do this? No. Let me just say, before I get into the outline this morning, two things about walking and seeing this through the eyes of a child that will give you lift when you look at this text rather than a burden. First of all, Paul says when he used the term walk, walk in love, walk in light, walk as the wise, he uses the terminology walk and not march. Okay? Now, I know you guys get troubled by long introductions, but this is necessary. It's important. I want you, it, it's going to make sense to you as we go through this that you will experience lift rather than a burden of the do nots and the do's if you have a growing visual of a child walking with a parent. Not marching. It's a walk, not a march. I want you to have this visual of a child walking with a parent, but not marching. In other words, it's something that is much more akin to play than work. At seven years old, Cassette had never known a father or mother. She knew she had a mother, but she had never met her because she had been sent away because of her mother Fantine's poverty at a very early age. She was now in the employ of the evil, cruel innkeepress, the Theardis. And Theardis had two daughters who were very similar in age to Cassette. But Cassette had to sweep and get water and get wood. She had to keep everything clean in the end. She was worked like a slave. She had a small place under a table near the fire that she could lay down without a pillow to sleep. And then a man came into her world. He came into the end, Jean Valjean. He knew her mother, and he would grant her mother's dying wish to go and get Cassette. Cassette was cowering under the, the table, watching with longing as the two little girls of the innkeeper played. And Jean Valjean looked at her and asked the innkeeper, what is she doing? And she says, oh, she's knitting. She's knitting socks so that my two little lovelies will, will have socks that they're already threadbare. Cassette had none. But she's working. Jean Valjean said, can I employ her? And she said, oh yes, if you can afford it. And he gave over a hundred dollars in order to purchase the time and the employ of Cosette. Cosette looks at him and she says, what is your wish? He says, now your work belongs to me. Come and play. The Apostle Paul wants us to know 
that the Christian walk is not work. It's more akin to play. So he's, when he starts talking about do not go into the dark and do not go into sensual behavior, God is not a party pooper who's trying to kill our life. He's a wonderful father who's saying, come away and play and have life. And then secondly, I want you to see that he directs them in this walk. It's not so much the what as the where. Where do children walk? Children walk in love. They love everybody. They even love the stranger. Children walk in light. Children are afraid of the dark, except when they know that a parent is with them. Children walk circumspectively. Now, they are certainly foolish children, but they walk wisely. They're paying attention. They're picking up things. Notice where he says these children walk. Now, let's look at these three areas that I outlined this morning. First of all, I want you to see that if you are a child, if your identity is as a Christian, a child of God, you have God as your father. And Apostle Paul encourages us here in verse 2 to walk in love as Christ. And then with verse 3, but sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as proper among the saints. He's saying, don't walk in impure love. Walk in imitation of Christ's love. This is something, as he's looking at these Gentiles, these Gentiles are in an idolatrous city. It was one of the seven wonders of the world at that time, the idolatrous temple of Diana, also known as Artemis. She was a fertility goddess. She had multi-breasts and she was worshipped and sacrificed to in some, you know, through orgies and sensual behavior and drunkenness. And many of the Gentile Christians would have been encouraged by their society to still practice sexual, sensual behavior. The term that he uses for sexual immorality in verse 3 is pornea, from which we get pornography. And he's not simply talking about pornography as we know it, but all fantasy, all lust, all sexual immorality. Those things that would deceive our heart and tempt us towards sensual behavior or sensual fantasies. And they were in that environment. And he was saying, don't love like those in your world love with their bodies, self-indulgent, but love one another and love God and love others like Christ's love, which is sacrificial. So he, he comes to us and he says, if you're going to be children who walk in imitation, you're going to be children who walk in love. And the love is going to be reminiscent of Christ's love, which is sacrificial, and not sensual love, which is self-indulgent. J.I. Packer puts it this way, the measure of love is how much it gives, and the measure of the love of God is the gift of his only son to become human 
and to die for sins, and so to become the one mediator that can bring us to God. C.S. Lewis, in the Screwtape Letters, has Screwtape, who is a senior demon and uncle to Wormwood demon, he's talking to him, and he's talking to him about the differences in love. The love of the devil versus the love of God. And he says, to us, to us demons and the devil, a human is primarily food. Our aim is the absorption of its will into ours, the increase of our own selfhood at its expense. One must face the fact that all the talk about his love, that's God's love for men, is not, as one would gladly believe, mere propaganda, but an appalling truth. He really does want to fill the universe with a lot of loathsome little replicas of himself. We want cattle who can finally become food. He wants servants who can finally become sons. And I would amend that to us to say, we want men and women to love that will become brothers and sisters. How do we get there? First of all, practice, practice, practice your love for Jesus if you would perfect your love for others. I have had on a prayer card for many years, love. I want to be a more loving man. Um, I don't think that love comes natural for me. But I can tell you, the stimulant for me to love you is to focus, reflect, meditate, and sing of the love of God for me in Christ. I am humbled by that gift of love to me. And the more that I rehearse, as Paul does in verse 2, as Christ loved us, gave himself up for us, where did he do that? On the cross. A fragrant offering. How do you get a fragrant offering? You crush crushed that and he was crushed on the cross and as sacrifice to God he gave himself in our place such that we by the forgiveness of our sin could become inseparable and as I think about that love that it begins to help and assist me to love you and then be mindful of the false gospels he says in verse 6 let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. He said, don't be deceived by the religious among you. Religious, there was a religious voice in the church at this time that were labeled the Gnostics. And they would tell you they believed in Christ. They would tell you that they believed in God as a creator. They believed in the forgiveness of sins. But they would also tell you that what happens with your body really doesn't matter that much to God. How you use your body doesn't really matter to God. Identify God in your heart. Identify with your soul, with Christ. But the things you do with your body really are not that important. I mean, God is loving. God is tolerant. God understands you've had a hard day. God understands your lonely life. God understands and he expects these compromises along the way. And he's not upset. 
And by that, we as Christians are deceived in these areas of sensuality. 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 14. They have eyes, now he's talking about people in the church, not just the world. They have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. They entice unsteady souls. They have hearts trained in greed, accursed children. In other words, they're people in the church that they have come to look at one another for selfish indulgence. What I can get from you. They've come to look at one another as if a predator, as if they're a predator and the person is prey. Verse 18, 2 Peter chapter 2. For speaking loud boast of folly, they entice by sensual passions of the flesh those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. In other words, he's saying that there are those of us that are very vulnerable to those who, even with a garment of Christianity, would lure us away. And he said, don't be deceived. Because that is not how we're called to walk. And they are walking in a manner of error that is bringing down God's wrath even as we speak. Again, this is something that if you, if you consider, am I walking in Christ's love and not in pure love? This itself can become very burdensome. Do you look at others sensually? The antidote is in verse 4. It may not appear so initially, but it is. Instead, which it says, let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead, let there be thanksgiving. Now you may say, I don't do any of those things. Hey, if you were to follow me around, I don't tell dirty jokes, I don't, I don't, uh, I don't have any filthy speech. What about the, the programs we watch? What about the, the blogs that we go on to? What about the people that we may not speak but we associate with that are around us? Those things can be very tempting. They can begin to, to create thoughts in our mind. How do we stop that? The antidote is thanksgiving. Here's the way it works. That you're able to look at another man or woman and instead of going or being led to an impure love, that you give thanks for them. You know that God is their creator. And you know that if they're identified with Christ, they are your brother or your sister. And not to be crass, but it's very, very difficult to lust after a sister. It's very, very difficult to lust after a brother. It's very, very difficult if you are a good family member to look at a brother and sister and say, "What can I'm looking at you only for what you can bring to me. Instead, you give thanks to the Father for them. So what happens is we begin to look at them with a, with a heart of gratitude and thanksgiving to God, and it begins to curb any sensual desires after them. Secondly, walk in light and not in former darkness. Now, 
I was watching a program recently where there was a night watchman over a brothel. And the brothel owner was having, had had a real change of heart. This female brothel owner had decided to close the brothel down and instead give it over to a schoolmistress who would use it as a school for small children. And this brothel owner, in the evening, it was starting to get dark, very lonely in a dark place, approached the watchman, and she said, does it trouble you keeping watch over such a dark place? And he said, no ma'am, especially when I know that the light is coming to it. In other words, he said, if I just dwelt in the dark, watched over this in the dark so that it was, it could be for deeds of darkness in the brothel, then yes, it would be troubling. But I'm able to watch in the dark because of the light that is coming into this place, because of the light that is promised to come into this place. The older I get, I am disturbed that I'm not farther along than the Bible even says I should be. I'm right where the Bible says that I should be as far as my sanctification. I'm not better than what the Bible says I should be, and that's troubling. I thought I'd be perfect at my age. 33, almost 33 years of ministry, I thought, I thought, man, I'd have this Christian walk. Damn. I would be so intimate a child with the Father that I'd almost walk on air in holiness. But I still struggle. I still struggle with, with the dark. And yet, the Apostle Paul tells the church and tells us, you will, but the light is coming. The light is coming and it's increasing in your life. And the way to know that you are a child and you can be identified as a child of God is that the light doesn't disturb you anymore. First of all, you experience the exposure and it's okay. The light metaphor, according to John Scott, speaks vividly of Christian openness and transparency of living joyfully in the presence of Christ with nothing to hide or fear. Before I became a Christian, I did not want to be exposed. I would either defend my sin or justify my sin, or I would shamefully hide it and press it down and deny it. But evidence that you have a real light in you is that your sin is increasingly exposed. And it troubles you only to the degree that it leads you without fear to repent. We don't cling to it like we used to. We don't fear the exposure. And the very fact that we're being our sin is being exposed is a testimony that I'm his child that he comes and he turns the light on. And it's not a cruel, fluorescent light. It's a light that we can indeed experience safety. Proverbs 24, verse 16 says, For though a righteous man falls seven times, he rises again. The light 
exposes my sin, now what do I do about it? If I walk in the light and not darkness, if I'm a child of God the Father, if I have the forgiveness of sins that Christ has given me and promised, now and in the future, then I can repent. I can rise again. I'm not completely laid out, undone, and said it's not working. It's not supposed to be this way. Or I'm too bad. Throw me over. I never was a Christian. No. That light is coming in increasing measure, exposing things. And I do three things. See if you've done all three of these things. First of all, I repent. When the light exposes the sin in Phil Stogner's life, I come before the Father and I ask the Father to forgive me. Father, I'm your child. Please forgive me. I am sorry. Wash my dirty hands or heart. Secondly, I renounce it. Many of us have not ever done this. I come and I say, my body is not my own. It is yours. I give my body not to sexual impurity, but I give my body to you for your use. To love the saints, to serve you, my God. I renounce it being used for evil. I give it to you. And then thirdly, Lord, I am but a child. Renew me. Heal me. Make me strong. And yes, make me wise. And that's the third category that we walk in. It says here in verse 15, Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. And he gives us a couple of things here. As he says in verse 15, to look carefully, he will, in another week, we will cover the passage where he talks in verse 10 of chapter 6, Finally be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God so that we can stand against the schemes of the devil for we wrestle not against flesh and blood. That's a battle terminology. That's a battle scene. We should wait. Paul says walk. If you're going to walk in that area where you walk in wisdom is you walk cognizant that it's a battleground. That it's a minefield. We need to go certain places and not go other places. We need to be aware that though God has won, His kingdom is coming, but it's not completely here yet. There is a tension of the now and the not yet. And we, are in service of Him, are a part of His plan to redeem this world and to redeem His people. But we need to walk circumspectly. What would it do tomorrow, before you leave your home, if you think of your, if you lay the scene of saying, it's a battlefield out there. Now I know God has won the war, but I have an enemy. I have a real enemy. And I need to walk wisely and, and cautiously. I think they would shape your prayers. And Paul knows that. Secondly, he uses the terminology in verse 16. He says, make the best use of the time because the days are evil. The terminology here is to literally buy back or redeem time. 
Jonathan Edwards, one of his resolutions was that he would every day be cognizant of the time ticking away before either the end of the world or the end of his life and that he wanted to make time work for him so that it counted for God. Do you, very simply, do you include God in your day? Do you make time for God? I know that you're going to have to buy it back. You're going to have to buy it from somewhere. It may be time on Facebook. It may be time in front of the computer. It may be time getting up early. It may time be time from sleep. It may be time from work. You're going to have to redeem that time, buy back that time. But the incentive here is, again, because these are evil days. And remember, remember, we have those that would pull us to sensual desires. We have those that would pull us into dark deeds and darkness and keep us there. He's saying, be mindful. Buy back the time. Thirdly, verse 17, understand what the will of the Lord is. I wish that I could take a lot of time. This deserves a sermon in itself. This is probably the most popular question that I'm asked. Pastor Phil, what does God want? What does God want me to do? Where is God leading me? What is the will of the Lord? Well, in part, buying back the time, you can use that time in two ways. Number one, God's Word. The Holy Spirit is within us. And the Holy Spirit is a guide. But the Holy Spirit never guides us apart from God's Word. Never. God's will is found in two categories. His general will. Is it God's will for you to commit adultery? Is it God's will for you to steal or not steal? Take that thing. Is it God's will for you to encourage someone or discourage someone? Is that God's those are no-brainers because he has told us, he has revealed in his word how we are to walk. If we're to, and we walk wisely when we follow his revealed or general will. It's here. But we're going to have to educate ourselves. The uh, J.I. Packer in his book, Knowing God, on the chapter on guidance of God, says there's six common pitfalls in guidance that quench the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit is the one that in the, the the Holy Spirit is the one that when we walk in wisdom and seek to be wise instead of foolish and unwise, it's the medium of the Holy Spirit influencing us. Jab Packer says you quench the Holy Spirit in six ways. Number one. An unwillingness to think. An unwillingness to think. God gave you a mind. He wants to use it. Number two, unwillingness to think ahead. There's a category of a fool in Proverbs. And he never thinks about tomorrow. He never thinks about stewarding the time or the resources. He never thinks ahead. Number three, an unwillingness to take advice. In just a few moments, the Apostle Paul will say in verse 21, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. There are others that are being led by God. And God's will is being revealed to them. and He's guiding them. And we, they're approachable. 
But will you take their advice? Number four, unwillingness to suspect oneself. You know who the biggest enemy in my life is? Me. So if I start to say, you know what? God, what's your will in this matter? You know, without any substantiation from the scripture, without any support from the scripture, this is the way I feel. This is, I, I really would like to do this. It's easy, it's comfortable, it makes me happy. This is the way I fulfill, I feel. Now, right then, I should arrest that and I should say, but you know what? I suspect you, Phil Stogner. You really like to, you like when the plans are made by you and they're self-serving. So be suspicious of that. Good thing for me to do is to go and run it by one of you guys. Run it by a brother or sister. So what do you think? At that point, you can say, ah, but God's word says this. Or by my experience, the way God works, this. Number five, unwillingness to discount personal magnetism. In other words, we're led by the loudest voice at the time. Think of a car salesman. Number six, un unwillingness to wait. Unwillingness to wait. At that point, we see that we are impatient. When you are in doubt as to which way to go, or what God is doing in this situation. When you need guidance, but you're in doubt, don't do anything. Just wait. You see, the very specific will of God, it is revealed to us not only as an echo of God's word, but also in prayer through the voice of the Holy Spirit. And that's different than personal feelings. So, with an intake of God's Word, we put ourselves in the way of wisdom and the work of the Holy Spirit. With prayer, we can pray specifically for God's will, and many times that will be revealed even in the church through the brethren, maybe through a sermon or a Bible study, or maybe a real certain confidence. I use a big word here, an unction, as it were, that we know, the suspicious of our own feelings, that it's not me. Usually it's going to be something that's called sacrificial. It's harder. If you've got two choices, one's really, really easy, one's really, really hard, God's will is probably the harder one. Um, last thing. We are told in verse 18 to not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. Then he tells us that being filled with the Spirit is going to You won't get thanks for all things except when all things are going.
we won't submit to people except when they're not being difficult or unattractive. The Holy Spirit, though, has an influencing property that Paul says is similar to wine. Wine, though, can lead to debauchery and self-indulgence, but the wine of the Holy Spirit can lead us to sacrifice worship and song, even in the most difficult and desperate times, because our worship is not influenced by outside circumstances, but by a sins, 